Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Buenos dias. I want to show you a picture of the neighborhood I live in. If we go to the next slide here. I just want you to reflect on this for a moment. This is Midtown. It could be any neighborhood in New York. We're going to look for a moment at how many stories are represented in that picture. We always zoom out. We see it from a big, big perspective. But I want you to think about every light that's in there, every office, every apartment, Most of these people are not from here. Most people moved here or they've moved around in their time here. So many stories. How on earth in a city like this do you form people into a family? Let's go to the next slide here. How do you get these people to even begin to have like a shared vision? Look at something like a worldview. By the way, this works. I think I'm a Christian, so it works for Christian theism. I didn't try the other ones. But if you have a look at this, you realize that inside the city and inside of each person, there is a vision, there's a heart, there's passions, there's this worldview that's leading to how people think, it's leading to what people want. You think about how many people and all those internal universes and where they're headed. How do you even begin to make sense out of one person's story, one person's vision for their life, and then how do you put them together? Well, inside the church, if we can go to the next slide, We solve the problem by having Christian theology, which is really simple. (laughs) This is just like one person's theological map. If you zoom in a little bit here, just to one of my favorites, which is it's got something about the kingdom of God in it. I'm not sure that we're getting much clearer. What a challenge to take people, millions of people in a city, and to try and have the same vision to try and unite them, to try and bring them together so that they are one in heart and mind, so that what Paul wrote to the Ephesians church actually happens. What a challenge we have on our hands. Now, this is not a challenge that's unique to us. The early church faced this challenge. If we can jump to the next slide here, one of the things you're gonna see uh, in this moment, this is a precarious moment in church history. This is what it says, Acts 1, 12 through 14. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Listen, those present, Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, to put this verse in context here, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's no longer physically present, hanging out with the disciples most of the time, the occasional appearance. 
You th- I want you to think about this, this, this moment here. Look who's in the room. Now, when Jesus was present, he had an incredible ability to mediate the worldviews, the stories, the visions, and the desires of his followers. If the sons of thunder were getting too, amb- uh, too ambitious, he could just say, pull your heads in. If they wanted to rain down fire, he could rebuke them and say, your theology is off. I came to save these people, not to burn them up. When Peter began to doubt, Jesus could bring him in or rebuke him. Jesus could bring tax collectors in and Jesus could bring people who had a vision of political terror in. But he's not there anymore. What a moment, a precarious moment in the history of the church. You've got Jesus' mother who's in there. She's still trying to get over the theological hangover of having birthed the Son of God into the world. Here she is in the room. Jesus' brothers are in the room. Sibling rivalry's there. They've got to be trying to figure out, I always knew that's why he was so good. I knew, I knew it. He was the Messiah. So I want to angry at their mother for the treatment, unjust for their behavior. I don't know. But then you've got, you do, you have a zealot. You have a zealot whose vision was overthrowing Rome with military might. You've got a tax collector who was employed by Rome to tax the people of God. Here they are together for a moment. This thing could have gone any number of ways. They're competing theology. They're competing politics, their competing understanding, their sense of entitlement. All of these things could have blown the church up before it really even got started. But something happened. In between this chapter and chapter four, the Holy Spirit descends and Pentecost happens in the church. The Holy Spirit comes inside these believers and reorients their hearts and their minds so that people from this many backgrounds, this many places, so different, could all come together as one people. Look what it says in Acts chapter four here, an almost impossible verse. All the believers were one in heart and mind. None of them, uh, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money of the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. What what an amazing passage here. But this is the thing that's amazing to me. Next slide. Not just what happened and what the fruit produced, but that they were one in heart and mind. This many backgrounds, this much tension, politics, theology, worldview, expectation, the Holy Spirit shows up and they are baptized into Christ as a new community. Now you see if we look at this passage that we just had read for us in Ephesians chapter four, that what started out as a powerful movement later on requires nurturing. It requires nourishment that when People began to move away from walking in the spirit. They would fracture back into their separate races or their separate ideologies or the separate political visions or the separate theologies that they would begin to fracture. And so the Apostle Paul, one of the central themes of the New Testament is the theme of unity, of bringing together people from different backgrounds so that they could be one in heart and mind. So Paul says in this verse here, Ephesians chapter four, let's hear it again. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, 
bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, you were called to one Lord, you were called to one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and who is through all. And so when we see the incredible beginnings of the church, we see this incredible baptism of the Spirit that united them into one people, one in heart and mind. We see Paul's warnings and the other apostles' warnings through the Scriptures as the church is moving out through the world on mission. The warning is always stay united. Knit your hearts. See what Christ has done for you. Do not take this for granted. This is the challenge that the early church faced. Next slide. If we can go along. One of the things I think is important to note, just the moment we are, uh, interestingly enough, in the history of our church. Uh, We're a church this year that turns 10 years old. This Easter, uh, it will be the one-year anniversary for Midtown and also Williamsburg, but it will be the 10-year anniversary of our church. 10 years ago, like a little ragtag of a group of people gathered in a theater in the Upper West Side, and Trinity Grace Church was born 10 years ago. And what an amazing thing to stand here today in this room, probably breaking fire code today, and I hope that doesn't go on the internet, but probably breaking fire code this morning, like being in here, what an amazing thing God's done. But look how stretched out we are become more diverse, the challenges where you've got different races and different backgrounds and different worldviews. Rich and poor coming to the same room, people who have millions of dollars who work at hedge funds and people who are struggling in their second job at McDonald's, all in the same room, same church family, working together. What a challenge we're going to have. Next slide here. So one of the ways that we've tried to think about this and address this as a church, and if you've been through Intro to TGC, you should have seen this. If you haven't, just email me later and we'll make sure this happens in your parish. But anyway, one of the things you sort of seen at Intro to TGC was like our vision of how church membership works and it sort of explains how we're seeking to be united right here. And so we've got this larger context as a congregation. There's a covenant community. Inside you're gonna see we have a shared authority, ethics, practices, and theology. So that means that we have a leadership structure and we have an ethical vision based on the Sermon on the Mount of what it means to follow Jesus. And then we've got these practices we do and then we have this theological vision. One of the things that's so interesting today is that you've got denominations that have the most articulate vision of authority, ethics, practices and theology better than we will ever be able to articulate it who are fracturing and splintering at a breathtaking rate. The division in the church today is, is, is so heartbreaking to behold. So if we think that our primary strategy for keeping us together, where will we be in 10 years from now? I'm not sure. But if we think our primary strategy is just gonna be a series of documents, and, and these things are good, trust me, we love these. But I don't think they're gonna be enough to keep us united, one in heart, one in mind, one in soul, one together. I think there has to be something fundamental underneath of this. And so what is that? I think that one of the things that's really been stirring my heart is not just asking what do you believe or how do you see the world, but really trying to get to the bottom question, what is it that you want? What do you want? We are creatures of desire. We are driven by desire. James K. Smith has pointed out in in a very articulate manner how we don't often love what we think we love. We can often divorce our theology and our ethics and still be driven by other passions. And so it's our vision, not just to have a great theological vision, a great ethical vision, a great church structure and and core shared practices. 
It's our heart that we would, as the people of God, want the same thing. That we would be here, not just united by agreement to a set of documents, but we would be here together, united by a same passion, a same desire. So underneath all of the things that are going on, I think it is God's heart that we have a passion for the Holy Spirit to unite and move in us together. When our church was birthed, it was, it was birthed with a vision to see, this is the phrase, the fame and deeds of God renewed and known in our time. I, if you've got a parish church in your neighborhood, I hope you enjoy the proximity, but our vision wasn't, hey, let's put a bunch of locations so it's convenient to walk to church. That wasn't like our heart and our mission. I hope you enjoy big gatherings like this, but the vision wasn't just how many people we can get in a room. These things end up being products, but the vision at the heart of it was to see the fame and deeds of God renewed and known in our time. There was a spiritual hunger that wanted to close the gap between what the Bible offered and much of our lived experience. We wanted to make our lives a living experiment in the kingdom of God to answer the question, does God still do the things in the scriptures in a place like New York today? That's the, that's the vision and passion behind it. And so I think that what we have to get back to is not just these, these secondary things, but this core thing. What do we really want? A passion to see spiritual awakening in our time. Now, why is a, a work of the Holy Spirit so important? Well, one of the reasons I think is that the Spirit is the internal force of reconciliation and unity. It's the internal force. The Spirit comes from within us, and instead of just like trying to brainwash you by putting really well-produced media and just like trying to recruit your affections and desires for that, the Holy Spirit actually comes inside of you by His power and melts your heart. Instead of just moralism, it seeks to bend you through guilt and shame and push you in a direction so you, you just change your behavior so that you're not judged or you feel left out. God actually changes your heart so you wanna be a different kind of person. And so we need an internal work of the Spirit because what God wants to do is form us into the image of Jesus and pour out His power and His glory. And that's gonna be one of the things, whether you are Latino or African-American or you're Chinese or you're Korean, if you're Australian, God still wants to come in and to reorient our hearts. So I wanna put forth that as we move forward, one of the things we have to cry out to God for in the next season of our church is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Not just a normal sense, like, you know, God's doing his things and he's got these means of grace and the sacraments and you do your stuff and it goes on. Something more than that. Something more than that. We don't wanna limp along for the next 10 years planning a church or so, and that will be great, but that's gonna fall short of what God has for us. We need an outpouring of the Spirit so that we're not relying on moralism or coercion to change things but a deep internal work of God. So why a work of the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is the only one who can truly convict us of our sin. I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, it's tough being a follower of Jesus in New York. Barna came out with his latest research and they said that Christians are put into two categories. Their faith is seen. Number one is irrelevant and number two is extreme. And if you're not a Christian here today, you're like, no, that about sums it up. There's a room full of people all singing to a God I can't see and it has nothing to do with my life. And so you may agree with Lana's research. What an interesting thing though, irrelevant and extreme. So how do you go about trying to get somebody who believes those things to feel a conviction of sin? Or you can beat people down, you can guilt people, we could turn into Pharisees, we could hold up the law and judge people. But one of the truths that the scriptures tell us is that anytime there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 
The Spirit is the one who convicts people of their sin. It's the Holy Spirit. Look what it says here in John chapter 16. Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people don't believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. One of the places that the church gets in trouble is that the church tries to act like the prosecutor. We think it's our job to rise up in the court of the moral universe and point to our culture how evil and wrong they are. But Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses, not that you'll be my prosecutors. He says that we're called to just stand up and to bear witness of the life, the grace, the power, and the goodness of how God's changed us, how his love has won us over, how he's reoriented our hearts and desires away from greed and selfishness towards justice and peace and his kingdom. And so we need the Holy Spirit so we don't become a legalistic movement that relies on cultural forms and norms to mold people into an image. We need the Holy Spirit to be poured out so that in the midst of all of the challenging situations we're in, we have an internal holiness where our sin is melted away. Second reason I think we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to unify us is because we need God to convince us that this thing is true. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5 says this, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. And I love that phrase, power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. I remember, uh, most of you know my story, Uh, I haven't always been a Christian. I remember the first time I I walked into a room like this, being very, very concerned about what I just stepped into. And I remember just like stepping into it going, oh gosh, it just, it just kind of just threw me. And I'd, I'd heard the Christian faith before. I'd heard uh, the things of God. I'd heard the gospel before. I'd heard the scriptures before. But I, I remember just thinking, it's not for me. It's irrelevant, and it's probably extreme. And then something happened. One, one day, hearing the message of Jesus, where all of a sudden, internally, I just had this sense, it's true. It's true. This isn't a myth like Lord of the Rings or whatever. This is true. That this is the true account of the human race. This is the true story that has narrated human existence. That all of my internal core longings, when I reach out for them, they find their place, they find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus and the announcement of his kingdom. And I think we need the spirit to do this because we live at a time in history where nobody believes in absolute truth, where the only truth is like, personal truth. It's like people can hate the Bible, but if you have opinions on the Bible, they like those opinions, but not the scriptures themselves. And it's an age of authenticity. And rather than just walking around trying to hold up like seminars against moral relativism, which I guess do have some use, when the Holy Spirit comes and he just goes, let me just tell you what's true right now. And he just has the capacity to internally convince us. We need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to do that in a place like New York, and and I think another reason we need a work of the Holy Spirit to bind us together is because the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus, and what Jesus does is confound the world. That's what he does. He just shows up and he says, this is not what God had in mind. This is not the way it's supposed to be, and he puts forth an alternative version, and he does it with supernatural power in the midst of this life and in this world. 
One of the verses that has shaped uh, some of our theology of church gatherings uh, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And this is where the Apostle Paul is uh, giving a vision of what should be happening in church. And this is what he says. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but it's for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Yes, they will. They will say that you're out of your mind. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in when everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin, they're brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare, so they'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So all of us are walking around, and there are secrets in our heart. There's things we hope for. There's things we're afraid of. There's things that have wounded us, and there's things we desire, secrets of the heart. And because the Holy Spirit has the capacity to search our hearts and to know our hearts, church should be a place where the Holy Spirit shows up, and he confounds our understanding of how big God is and what he can do. And what the, Apostle, what the Apostle Paul's doing here is brilliant scripturally. In the last part of this verse, it says, they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. The Apostle Paul is basically doing a mashup of a couple of verses that you find in the Old Testament. And he's trying to help people see that when the church relies on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in its midst to be its animating force, something's going to happen. And so he's giving these Old Testament pictures. Next slide. Here's a couple of what they are. So this is from Isaiah 45, 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over and change and bow down to you. They'll plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other God besides you. What an incredible picture here that these other nations, other empires, Egypt, Cush, the Sabaeans, who by the way were men of stature, that all of these people together are gonna come over and they're gonna say in the midst of all of our military might and our wealth and our abundance and our might, in the midst of all of that, you've got something we want. You've got the one true God. Next slide here. This is a passage from Zechariah chapter eight. It says this, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So you see the picture that the Apostle Paul is trying to paint here, that God would do something so spiritually provocative in your midst, the people of abundance and might and influence We'd want to grab a hold of the hem of the garment of your life and say, what on earth do you have spiritually? That it's no longer about our standing or our status or what we've accomplished. It's no longer about our education or how well we feel about ourselves, but God would do something so powerfully in us that others would be drawn to us. We need God in our midst to confound us like this. One historic example of a group of people who I think the Holy Spirit showed up that are in some sense a, a, a historical mentor of our church is the Moravians. How many of you have ever studied the Moravians? Just been like, what are you doing this? We're gonna go to Netflix? Actually thinking about getting into the Moravians. You see Making a Murderer. You read about the Moravians? I mean, it's one of those sorts of things. The Moravians are an incredible movement. If we can just jump to this next slide here. Uh, from the 1700s, there's a picture of uh, the Moravians. This is Count Zinzendorf and his 
Hernhut, which is the little village where these things were based. I want to read you a bit of an account of what happens. These were a group of followers of Jesus who basically formed out of religious persecution who came together with a vision of the kingdom of God through their lives. This is what it says. Uh, So some context. There are a small group of refugees from Moravia who came to establish a village of of peace in the kingdom of God on Count Zinzendorf, who was a a wealthy count on some land that he owned. They named the village Hernhut, and uh, it became a unique Christian community that was guided by a brotherly agreement. So all of these these refugees came pouring, and they were being persecuted, they were being slaughtered, many of them because they were Anabaptists. They come together, they're in this village, they've got all of this different theology, and they want to have this place where God brings them together for some sort of holy purpose. 1727, Lutherans, Reformed, Baptists, etc., had joined the community. Questions of predestination, holiness, the meeting and moment of baptism, the Lord's Supper seem likely to divide the group, this is a village of about 300 people, into a number of small and belligerent sects. Then the more earnest and spiritual souls among them began to cry out. So here you are, they're drawn together with this vision of what they want God to do, but you've got Baptists, you've got people who believe in predestination, you've got people who believe in free will, you've got people who believe in believer's baptism, infant baptism, and they're all together and they had this vision, but then it begins to fragment into various theologies. So a few people among them gather together, and this is what we read. On August the 13th, 1727, a dramatic event occurred among the Moravians. Just as Jesus talked about rivers of living water being poured out on people, the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. Zinzendorf and 14 of the brethren spent the whole night in spiritual conversation and prayer, begging God for unity. At midnight, a large group uh, near the church building began to cry out for God in an all-night prayer meeting. At the dawn, they were greeted with a beautiful morning and a sense of the presence and power of God. And this is what we read, what happens when they showed up to church. While they were singing a hymn, a powerful wave of emotion swept over the congregation. The awareness of the holiness of God was like a purging fire, leading them to a deeper repentance. People began to weep so profusely that their loud cries drowned out the singing. Some began to pray fervently with intense voices, new vigor and passion to worship, filled their hearts as the power and the glory of the Holy Spirit descended upon the assembly. The presence of the Lord was so overwhelming, some reeled and some sank down to the dust before God. As time went on, the sweetest and joy of tasting the Lord's presence was so intoxicating, they didn't want to leave the church grounds. People gathered in small groups, embracing each other and asking for forgiveness. Others were praying, weeping, talking, and singing. They'd already been of one body as a religious community, but now they were bonding their hearts in spirit and in warmth. So how do you take people with different theologies, different backgrounds, people's different understanding of the kingdom of God and unite them together? It's only an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has the capacity to do that. And when it came, people were repenting. People were overwhelmed by God's goodness. People were uniting their hearts together. God had melted their hearts. And so that this theme began amongst the Moravians of Christian unity. One of their key leaders who had a profound impact on John Wesley said this, It is truly a miracle of God that out of so many backgrounds, including Lutherans, Reformed, Separatists, and Calvinists, we melted into one. There we were baptized by the Holy Spirit himself in one love, Zinzendorf. We saw the hand of God and his wonders, and we were all under the cloud of our fathers, baptized with the Spirit. The Holy Ghost came upon us, and in those days, great signs and wonders took place in our midst. From that time, scarcely a day passed that we beheld his almighty workings among us. 
And so you begin to see that after this movement of the Holy Spirit has poured out and brought unity, something happens. Next slide here. It begins to, the Holy Spirit begins to work in their children. Imagine this happening in the kids' ministry downstairs. The children of both sexes felt a more, most powerful impulse to prayer. And it was impossible to listen to their infant supplications without being deeply moved and affected. A blessed meeting of the children took place in the evening of the 26th of August and on the 29th from the hours of 10 o'clock at night until one the following morning, a truly affecting scene was witnessed. For the girls from Hernhut and Bethledorf spent these hours in praying, singing and weeping. The boys were at the same time engaged in earnest prayer in another place. The spirit of prayer and supplication at that time poured out upon the children was so powerful and efficacious that it was impossible to give an adequate description of it in words. So the Holy Spirit's not just uniting people from different theological backgrounds, it begins to unite generations with one heart. Next slide here. And they get swept up into this spirit of mission. God begins to send them out. Five years later, they started to send missionaries into many continents. The brethren didn't fear prison, shipwreck, persecution, ridicule, plagues, poverty, or threats of death. Through the leading of the Holy Spirit, they became outwardly centered and realized that it is a personal responsibility of every member in a Christian community to evangelize. For the most part, they were men of little formal education. What they lacked in knowledge, they made up for in piety and they made up for in passion. What an amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if they were here today, if, if Zinzendorf would come in and would be like, hey, mate, thanks for coming. Good to have you. Just going to do an interview with Zinzendorf this morning, ladies and gentlemen. Zinzendorf, morning. And uh, he comes in. Hey, have you got any advice for us? Here's the different theologies in the room. Here's the different our socioeconomic backgrounds, here's the different races. What have you got for us that's gonna unite us? Is it missiology? Is it just our theology? Will that be enough? What do we need here? And I think you would say, you gotta seek God. The only hope that Trinity Grace Church has for its future is a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit to keep you united, to keep you on mission with what God has for us. Early church, different backgrounds, one in heart and mind. One in heart. I think about our church, one in heart. If I was to describe the work of God amongst us, I would describe it as this, dribs, drabs, and a slow grind. Dribs, drabs, and a slow grind. Now, I love a drib and a drab, and I'll take a slow grind. But I think that God has more for us. I think God has more for us. Some of you, some of you I think when we listen to this, like you're like, oh my gosh, is that John Tyson speaking? He sounds like a revivalist or something. Like, what's going on here? Listen, calm down, calm down. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I want you to see here, just to, to calm you down a bit, I'm going to bring up Jonathan Edwards now, okay? Jonathan Edwards, very strong Calvinist, very conservative. This is how Jonathan Edwards described what was happening amongst himself. His revival is an acceleration of the normal work of the Spirit. Let me think about that phrase. Revival is an acceleration of the normal work of the Spirit. So we're not asking God to put on a circus for the sake of entertainment. We're asking God to accelerate the normal work of what he does through his people. That's what it is, that we would have a pocket or a window where what would perhaps take 150 years happens in 15 years that God brings and collapses those things together. Listen to what he says. There seems to have been a very extraordinary dispensation of providence. God has in many respects gone out of and much beyond his usual and ordinary way. Edwards wrote on his narrative of surprising conversions. 
The work of this town and others about us has been extraordinary on account of the universality in all aspects, in affecting all sorts, sober and vicious, high and low, rich and poor, wise and unwise. Edwards rarely saw dramatic spiritual change in everyday life except from the young. But during revival, even older church members professed newfound vitality. His sermons marshaled the same old arguments, but they suddenly gained traction and people understood what had previously escaped them. Every preacher's dream, people understood what had previously escaped them. It seemed like almost overnight, the, ch- the town changed unmistakably. Overcome either by distress from sin or by the greatness of God, People talked of nothing but revival. Those yet untouched by the awakening pleaded for God to revive them, like spiritual jealousy of what God was doing and people felt left out. Every day felt like Sunday and everyone seemed to look forward to the Sunday meeting. So this is Jonathan Edwards. This is like, this is sinners in the hands of an angry God. And this is his description of what happened when the Holy Spirit poured out his presence among them. He goes on and he says this, our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbor. This is the ministry of Jonathan Edwards when he realized that they need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and he was hungry for more. What a prayer, a prayer for more. Last year, we did something as a pastoral team we've never done before. We just, you know, because you know, most of us have hangovers from working in mega churches. Most of us were so burned out on like big programs and all the rest of it, that we probably overacted a little bit. And then now we have a mega church. I mean, there's that too. So. But uh, never, never our intent just to grow something large for its own sake. And so one of the things that we've never really done is like counted programming. We never really, ca- we basically only count for like insurance purposes. We've never really counted how many people come to Christ because we don't want people to be projects and all that sort of stuff. We thought, you know what, at some point we should probably inspect what God's doing amongst us. So we got the pastors together last year and we just asked this question, how many people that you know of that you can say with some sense of assurance became followers of Jesus in the last year because of the ministry of our church? So last time I looked, there's about, I don't know, 2,400 people on a typical Sunday around TGC. That's the last number I saw. And we tallied it up and only 49 people of all of those people were people who had come to Christ in our church. That's a conversion rate of about 2%, 2% conversion rate. That means basically that what Trinity Grace Church has been really, really good at is creating programs that Christians from other places like to come in and be a part of. And we think about moving 10 years forward, we think about the kind of church we wanna be, we think about the things we signed up for to see God do, and it's just too hard and too much work to put on that many programs just so Christians can enjoy what we do. Now, if you're a Christian, I love you. (laughs) And I'm so glad you're here, and the church matters. But Jesus said there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who don't need to. Our heart, our movement, what we are as a community, no matter how good it looks from the outside, is not matched up to the heart of God. And we have dribs, and we have drabs, and we have a slow grind. 
And I think that what we should have when we hear these fruits and we hear these accounts and we read what God promises in the scripture and we look at the life and ministry of Jesus and his priorities, that should cause us to say we need more of the power of the Holy Spirit to shape our future and not less. We need a deep sense that God's hand is on us and that he drives us for this. One in heart, one in heart. The other thing it says about the early church, yeah, more Lord. The other thing it says about the early church is this, they were one in mind. So you had this collective sense, these people all gathered together who wanted the same thing, but when they closed their eyes, they saw the same thing. They had the same vision. Their picture of the future of what they wanted God to do was the same. They had the same picture. Same thing, same thoughts, alignment, the power of alignment believing and thinking about what God wants to do, all pointed in the same direction, not fractured. I was reading an account uh, this past week in some of my reading about a story about Charles Finney, and I read this and I was like, this is like a picture of what I think some of the things God wants to do through our midst. Have a listen to this. This is an account of Charles Finney. This is what it says. Charles, and we've gone all over the map theologically, so you're welcome. We've got Finney and Edwards in the same point, so there's that, Okay. <laughs> Charles G. Finney was a 19th century evangelist whose life demonstrated God's powerful presence. During a trip to New York Mills in 1826, Finney visited a cotton manufacturing plant where his brother-in-law was superintendent. As Finney passed through a spacious room in which many women were working at looms and spinning uh, fennies, he noticed several young women watching him and speaking among themselves. As Finney approached them, they became more agitated. When Finney was about 10 feet away, one woman sank to the ground and burst into tears. Soon others were sobbing, overcome with conviction of their sin in the presence of the visiting evangelist. The Spirit's outpouring spread rapidly throughout the building until the entire factory was singularly aware of God's presence. The owner, an unbeliever, realized something unusual was occurring, temporarily closed the plant and asked Finney to preach to his employees and tell them how they might find peace for their souls. Finney had not spoken to the laborers. He merely entered the factory. God's presence and Finney's life was too overwhelming to ignore. When I study the scriptures and when I listen to church history, I read accounts of these portals where God pours out his spirits and takes people from these random backgrounds and he baptizes them together and pours out his spirit and he uses them for their purposes. I was talking with a friend of mine recently who was in San Francisco during the Jesus movement. And he said to me, you know, if you've ever been to San Francisco, you know that it doesn't feel like the Jesus movement. And he said, when God just opened up his hand, when this acceleration of the normal work of God happened in San Francisco, he said, you would just go out, go on, out on a typical night talking to people and 50 people would come to Christ and we just baptize 200 people every weekend. Just the normal work of the Spirit was accelerated. What an incredible thing. 50 people a night, 200 people a weekend. What an amazing thing. A secular city like that where God would move in such powerful ways that would take years and years is happening in moments. People baptized into a mission larger than themselves. It's not gonna be theological nuance. It's not gonna be methodology, principles of missiology or contextualization that is going to unite us. We have to close our eyes, want the same things and see the same thing for our future baptized by the Spirit in his power for his mission in our time. Now, some of you at this point are pretty smart people, and you're like, John, uh, I, I don't know about you, uh, 
Uh, but do you not, are you not aware that the time of history we live in, this is like post-postmodernism, secularism, do you not understand there's no plausibility structures for people to even get to Jesus? So there's like a really slow work of building the plausibility structure over the course of multiple years and all the rest of it, yeah. The other thing I'd say to that is that the Jews in the first century had no plausibility structure that the Son of God was gonna rise from the dead in the middle of history, but the church was born. And so the Holy Spirit comes in and what He does is He builds the plausibility structure internally. We cannot, we cannot make excuses about the culture that we live in. We have to trust the power of the Holy Spirit to do His work. Our dreams for the future cannot be defined by the plausibility structures of secular culture, but by the purposes and power of God in our time. That has to be true for us. We have to believe this as we look at this. We are not called a dream out of the plausibility structures of late modern Manhattan. Has to be more than that. So what's our response to all of this? Our response to this as we move forward. She marks the 10-year anniversary of our church. What's our response? I think as I've been thinking through this myself, just my own personal response is just one of repentance. And I don't mean like a beat down repentance, I mean a changing of my mind, a turning around and pursuit of something else. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his book on revival. He says, and content with that, we spend our lives in busy activism instead of pausing to realize the possibilities, instead of realizing our own failure and realizing that we are not attracting anyone to Christ, that they probably see nothing in us that makes them desiring to come to him. The inevitable and constant preliminary to revival has always been a thirst for God, a thirst, a living thirst for the knowledge of the living God and a longing and a burning desire to see him acting, manifesting himself in his power, rising and scattering his enemies. And I just have to just repent and say, my life has been defined by busy activism. Just busy doing my thing. Typical New York Christian life, trying to figure out how to hustle and stay. Busy activism. So I think part of it is just repenting. The second thing is turning away from one thing, is reorienting ourselves around God. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. This is a book he put out. It was a bestseller in his day. This was the book title that Jonathan Edwards put out to call his people to seek God more. If we can pop it up here. Next slide. An humble attempt to promote an explicit agreement and visible union of God's people through the world, an extraordinary pair for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth, pursuant to the scripture promise and prophecies concerning the last time. It's just what he called it, but what an amazing <laughs> book here. And he, what he wanted to do is he saw God doing something that had hungry, and he, he basically tried to get the world's attention and say, let's press in here. God wants to do something. Wake up. Let's have extraordinary prayer. Let's come together for this. And he tried to rally people around this vision. And I want to call our church to not just repent of like not doing enough for God, not like that, but to reorient ourselves around what God has for us. A call to extraordinary prayer that we would be united around the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth, pursuant to scriptural promise and prophecies concerning the last time that this would be something deep in our hearts that stirs up what we do. And I wanna say, we've got an opportunity to do this together. Our church follows the church calendar. Lent is almost upon us. Lent is a period, it's a time of fasting. It's a period where you turn away. It's a period of pressing in. Can I just call us as a church family, not to give up like caffeine or milk in your coffee or snacks or cigars or whatever it is that you give up for Lent. 
But whatever it is, that this would be a time where we come together for 40 days and ask God to unite our hearts like he never has before. That he would pour out his power, pour out his presence upon us. That this would be a time where you reorient yourself towards the promises of God concerning the things he wants to do. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, conservatives would rather work to reform church theology and practice. Intellectuals doubt supernatural intervention. Rationalists dismiss emotional enthusiasms. All convene committees and organize campaigns, but few will plead for revival. I think this is a part of the call of our church, a part of why we were founded, that we would plead for this, that we would ask God to do this in our time, that we would have, lastly, just this, that we would cultivate this deep sense of hunger to want the same things, to have the same vision. Herman Humphrey says this, the history of the church is sometimes sparkling in the sunlight, sometimes all but swallowed up in the sands of the desert, breaking out again in the promised land at one period a wide river, then a a contracted rivulet almost forgotten for long reaches and widening again to keep the promise alive when it seemed to have disappeared forever in the stagnant marshes of Babylon. Next slide. Widening again to keep the promise alive when it seemed to have disappeared forever in the stagnant marshes of Babylon. One of the promises that the Moravians prayed, one of the promises that sent the Moravians out was from Isaiah 44. This is what it says. For I will pour out water to quench your thirst and to irrigate your parched fields. And I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your children. And so the Moravians gathered around a verse like this and they said, in our time, God. So you know what the Moravians did? They started praying and they kept praying 24 hours a day for a hundred years. God did something so profound in them and had such a passion working within them. They were united, one in heart and mind, a purpose that was bigger than theology or methodology or contextualization or sociology, a burning spiritual passion where they wanted the same things and had the same vision for their future. Next slide. Most people when they come to New York, and this is what you think about, it's your story. I like your story. I really do. I love the concept of narrative. I think it's a beautiful beautiful way to view reality. But I think next slide here, there's actually something better than that that God wants to do. It's to unite us. God's heart is that he would take people from every background Every theology, like he would bring us together as one and that we together would have a story that God, as he looks over the city, would find a people he can trust, to find a people he would use, who would be united around vision and mission. They would want the same things. They would see the same future. This is what I think God wants to do. Next slide here. Go back to this picture of the city. Look at that. My apartment's in there somewhere. Other people's apartments are in there. Just a group of splintered individuals coming and going, doing our thing. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if in the middle of a city like New York, God poured out his spirit. And underneath everything that unites us on paper, there would be a supernatural spiritual hunger. One in heart and mind that the next 10 years would not be defined by how many locations or how many staff or our our neighborhood preferences for how we do worship. But underneath all of that would be this deep hunger. 
Jeremiah 32, 39 says this, I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that and all will go well for them and for their children after them. This is a prayer for our church, singleness of heart and singleness of action so they'll always fear me, that it will go well for us and that our children will thrive after us because of the legacy we leave. 10 years in, here we are. It's been so great having you for the journey so far. I'm amazed at all God's done, but I'm not satisfied. I think God has more for us. I think he wants to pour out his spirit upon us. I think he wants to use us. So I wanna call you as we head into Lent to fast, to pray, to seek God, that he would do something so profound amongst us that we would be united like we never had so that as we move forward, we will be one in heart and mind. Let's pray. Father, all we can do is come before you, Lord, and just tell you how hungry we are. Lord, we just wanna say to you in your presence, we are not satisfied with success in evangelical Christianity. We wanna come before you, Lord, and say we are not satisfied that we found some Christian friends and we've got a great local church. We're not satisfied, Lord, because we read the gap between what you promise and what we experience, and rather than being cynical, it stirs up our hunger. So we just wanna pray, Holy Spirit, that you would pour out your life and your power upon us, that the next 10 years of the life of our church would be defined by your kingdom coming in power and glory, that you would accelerate what's happened over 10 years. That sort of thing would happen in months, and that your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done in New York as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.